we're looking at from a bigger perspective of Luke Acts, how God sets people free, how we understand what's important. And I'm hoping I can do a adequate job of explaining some things that I think about literally every day. Uh, I just love Luke Acts. And First Corinthians is amazing how it's same theme. So we'll begin with prayer. Dear Lord, thank you that we can gather and open the scriptures. Thank you for your goodness and kindness. And Lord, we pray for Eric as he teaches the word that we'd be having hearts to hear and learn and believe. And we ask you for wisdom from your word as we study today in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we're looking at Luke Acts, it's a two-volume work by the same author, inspired by the Holy Spirit. I came up with this title, The Truth Magnifies the Lord, The False Glorifies Man. And I think you can see that throughout Luke Acts. In fact, that's thematic in Luke Acts. And what happens is that various people are supposed to learn things, and they don't, including the disciples. It takes a while. And what we're to learn is that um, arguing about who's the greatest is a bad idea. Is that a simple way of saying it? So let's look at this. The context. Now, I know this goes back a while. I missed a couple weeks and so on. But remember, God had done mighty things through Paul. And what happened was there were these sons of Sceva wanted to get in on the action because in the ancient world, it's still true today, by the way, the ability to deal with the world of the spirits to some beneficial end is very, very valuable. Highly prized, highly sought after to be able to manipulate the world of the spirits. And so what they thought was that somehow names, if you had the right name, that would give you power. If you had the right information, if you had the right incantation, and so on, you could control the world of the spirits. And what they would, in excavations, historical studies have demonstrated this over and over again. And the idea was to find benefit or prosperity or desirable outcome, or to break curses and remove evil, evil spirits or bad outcome. But that's not the point of the gospel. The point of the gospel is forgiveness of sins. And I've talked about that. I think I've mentioned Luke 5 several times recently. So seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. That's a bad outcome. Now, what we need to do, and it's utterly necessary is to read Luke Acts as a two-volume work. That's what it is. And if you go back into Luke, you see similar things. And this is all telling us where it's going. In Luke, Jesus has power over everything that the people feared. And that's really stands out in the passages where he walks on water, he goes to the land of the Gerasenes, uh, his power. Is there anything, any worse situation than a total demoniac, chained, naked, in a cemetery? Everybody's afraid of him. We'll look at that. So the point is, God is the only one who can deliver people from the domain of darkness. 
And that's exactly what happens. So let's do some reviews and previews. That's the best way to learn Luke Acts. So Luke 9, 37 to 43, and I'll go a little further. I think I mentioned this before. And interestingly, in God's providence, I got an email last night from a guy rebuking me for rejecting uh, hyper-dispensationalism and the idea that um, the, the Gospels aren't for Christians. The Gospels are there for a kingdom that was never established because the Jews rejected it. I'll respond tomorrow to the guy, but I wrote an article. Somebody found it on our CIC website. It doesn't. It's just a crazy reading. But Luke Acts is a two-volume work. And don't cite some verse here and there. If you want to understand Luke Acts, start and read all, all of Luke, all of Acts, and just study that, learn it, see how it works, and it'll be very clear. The themes do not change. And I'll try to show you that. Now, I mentioned before in Luke 9, the Mount of Transfiguration is very important. It's a very important key to Luke Acts. So what we know happens on the Mount of Transfiguration is that there are... um, Jesus goes up there with three disciples, and what you have is Jesus is transfigured. You have Moses and Elijah. What are Moses and Elijah talking about with him on the mount? His literal, his exodus, which he's about to accomplish, and the terminology in the Greek literally uses exodus. So Jesus is talking with Moses, Elijah, about what God's going to do. So this, the terminology would indicate this isn't a failure. So somebody said, well, um, Jesus offered a kingdom. They rejected it. It was too hard. So therefore, the church was sort of a plan B or, or something else. That's not how Luke portrays this. So on the next day, they came down from the mountain, verse 37. I'm going to read this. You can turn there if you you want to. And on the next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him, and a man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. And a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth. And only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. I begged your disciples to cast out, and they could not. Now, this is, in a sense, a shocking response, unless you've been reading Luke Acts, and you started to read the beginning of Luke. But this is what they say. Here's what Jesus said. And Jesus answered, said, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long will I be with you and put up with you, bring your son here? And while I was still approaching, the demon slammed him into the ground, threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And, when, and they were, look at these key words. You can look them up with your concordance. They were all amazed at the greatness of God. Okay? That's in Luke uh, 9, 41, 42, 43. They are amazed at the greatness of God. But while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, now hold on a second. What if we went back? I spent a bunch of time this last few weeks doing that. What if we looked... And what happened before all this? And if you went back and saw what we should know if we're an astute reader of Luke, that the reader should be prepared about what God's going to do. So what already happened? I talked about this some, I think, 
the last few weeks or whenever I've been here. Well, first of all, remember when they, they had a paralyzed guy and they lowered him down? They were, and Jesus said to him, your sins are forgiven. That's in Luke 5. I think, sins are forgiven? Who, what's that? He said, in order that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said, arise and walk. So he heals the paralyzed man. Common theme. So if you go on, you have other things that happen here. Let me make sure I get this right. And if so you go on and it's just demonstrating that God's doing mighty deeds. That was announced early on by people upon whom the Holy Spirit came. Simeon and Mary and Zacharias and so on, they announce the mighty deeds of God coming on the scene of history. God's going to do mighty deeds. So what is really preparing us for Luke 9 is what happens before that. Now, if you look in Luke 8, everything that they feared the most, and they had plenty of fears, as we all do, are things that Jesus already demonstrated his power over. Just run through your mind. The best thing you can do, spend your life studying the Bible so that it's just there. And it just comes to your mind. It takes a long time, but it's worth it. The wind and wave obey the Lord. Notice, um, starting in verse 22, they got into a boat, let's cross over the other side, and then he fell asleep. We're going to die. Um, he said to them, where is your faith? Now, why would he be thinking you have a lack of faith? Because anybody's been in a boat in the ancient world and they feared the sea. They didn't want to die at sea. They feared that that was it. In order to give comfort at the end of Revelation, it says the sea gives up the dead. Okay? So dying at sea isn't the end. But they feared it. They had a horrible fear of the sea. And he said, where is your faith? And it says in verse 26 of, of Luke 8, they were fearful and amazed. Um, I don't know how many people have Logo software, but this is so powerful. If you look up the word amazed in Luke Acts only, it's a key. When you find amazed, pay attention to what's going on. Because this is unknown. This is unique to Jesus. He's not just another teacher. He's just not a new religious leader. He's not a new exorcist with better technique. He's God incarnate. God the Son, the one that eventually ends up here in Luke 9, a transfiguration. Then what's the next thing that happens? Well, we have the, he went over to the Gerizines, which is Gentile territory. So he goes to the unclean territory of the Gentiles, a guy with unclean spirits, a guy naked, a guy chained, unclean cemetery. The demons go out, the legion, into swine, unclean, into the sea, which they feared, even though he had just calmed the sea. And so the point isn't, if we learn the right technique, we can do that. No. The point is, no one can do this, only Jesus. It's unheard of. In fact, the worst situation you could ever think of is right here. And he deals with it. Not only that, this is a preview of the mighty deeds of God. Not only that, notice in verse 35, after all of that that I just gave you a summary of, then the people went out to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and found the man with the demons had departed from sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. He's fine. They're afraid. Okay? And meanwhile, the eyewitnesses reported to them how the demon-possessed man was delivered. 
that all the people of the Gerizim region asked him to leave them. Because they were grip, gripped with great fear. They said, yeah, go. They were afraid. Okay? And verse 13, the man from whom the demons had departed kept begging him to be with him. He wanted to follow Jesus. But he sent him away saying, go back to your home and tell all that God has done for you. This man was so delivered that he was trusted to be a witness about Christ as a Gentile in Gentile territory on the other side of Galilee, land of the Gerizines. It's a preview of who God might use. Could God use Saul of Tarsus? Hostile man? Intent to attack anything that's good? There's previews. If you learn how to read Luke Acts, you won't read some silly guy that says, well, God was trying to do this and that, but he couldn't, so therefore the church... I wrote an article even rebuking these false teachers for saying, we're not even under the new covenant. We don't have any covenant. And so this you've got to read. You've got to read. I still hear Dr. Versa, but read the text. Wow. Isn't that something? If God can do that, can he deliver you, your friends? Can he forgive sins? Can he change a hostile enemy into a disciple? Yes, go ahead, Brian. I think it's an interesting point that the guy who was delivered was a Gentile because that in itself, isn't that a preview of right. what's coming up in Acts? And it says that even earlier in Luke. There's a, there's a prophecy earlier that even Gentiles will trust in him. So there's a preview. Previews, reviews, uh, allusions. I love it. If you learn how to read, you won't want to listen to sermonettes for Christianettes. Um, it doesn't work. You need the truth. It's so powerful. So think about that. So he's already conquered there the things they feared the most, dying at sea, uncleanness, cemeteries. Do you know what the false teachers get out of this whole thing? You got to learn the name to get the demons out. They'd miss the point by a million miles. And the sons of Sceva had the same idea. So anyone reading Luke Acts, and they get to this verse, and they think that what this teaches is you've got to learn the name of the head demon. They aren't reading. Jesus didn't need anything. The legion is there to show us that the worst possible situation is not beyond, beyond his power. Just like this walking in the water and the calming the sea, the, the Gentile, the unclean. What comes after that? Keep reading. There was a, uh, as we go on, there's a woman that had been bleeding for 12 years, continual hemorrhage for 12 years. What did that mean in her world? Unclean. Perpetually unclean, unable to f- function in normal Jewish society, because she was unclean, 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 unclean. Always unclean. Yeah, it was a horrible situation, just like the lepers. What else happened? Ten lepers cleansed them. One comes back to thank him. A Gentile. It's a preview. Here, he's, whoops, excuse me. If I have the sound man, I can only goof up my own sound. That's a good thing. Anyhow, so here you have, you can't think of worse situations. But what happens with this as he's going along? Who touched me? A lot of people. She said, daughter, your faith has made you whole. Uh, remember he was on his way because this person was sick who might die. So if you look down here in Luke chapter uh, 8 and verse 49 after he heals the unclean woman with the issue of blood while he was still speaking someone came from the synagogue leader's house saying your daughter's dead don't bother to teach her anymore 
When Jesus heard it, verse 50, he said, don't be afraid, only believe she will be made well. They're crying, they're mourning, they're wailing. He gets there. Now, he took her. She was dead. Child, get up. Her spirit returned. She's raised from the dead. What is there in this whole narrative of the calming of the sea, death, demons, uncleanness, Gentiles, everything they feared, everything that would make life hopeless and helpless had all been defeated by Jesus already. Not completely, because it's all looking forward to the cross, but showing he has the authority to do it. And he said that. In order that you might know the Son of Man, which is a reference to Daniel 7, the Messiah has authority on earth to forgive sins, arise and walk, paralyze, unclean, everything. So what problem is worse than being unclean? Being lost for all eternity. Okay, forgiveness of sins, yes. Could you explain to us again why with the guy who was possessed, Jesus told him to go out and tell everyone, but here they're told to don't tell anyone? Right, because um, the Lord in the Gentile territory, this man was a living witness of the goodness of God through Israel's Messiah, which is a preview of what's going to happen in Acts. The mistake people make is failing to read Luke Acts as a two-volume work. There's all, one of the great, brilliant devices that Luke uses is re- previews and reviews. I'm saying this is a review. What happened earlier is a preview. So there was no danger. What, why would he say not to say it to some people now? Because they want to make him king. And it, it was, the point is, he didn't come to rule over a kingdom of lost sinners. He came to die for sins once for all and to bring the possibility of forgiveness and redemption through his blood. So as you have, you just keep going on here. And I, again, there's too much, but feed the 5,000. So review all the way back in the Old Testament. They welcomed him. 5,000 were there, more than that even. It's just the men. And so fear of famine, fear of starving, fear of demons, fear of death, fear of being unclean. If you have 12 years of continual bleeding, you're unclean, and that's all you ever are. Lepers had to go out and shout, Akathartos, uh, unclean, unclean. I'm unclean, so people didn't accidentally get near them and not be able to go into normal synagogue or temple life. And so it was just continual. Now, so what happens on Transfiguration? I already mentioned that. They come down, all right? After all of that, now you start to see what the issue is. The astute reader of Luke will say, Luke 9. Well, yeah, we know he has, he's already done greater things than that. But look at 44. You have to turn here. Luke 9, 44, 45, and 46. This is the key. And this will help us understand Luke Acts. I, um, I'm so glad I got that email when I did. I'll respond to it tomorrow. But what is the issue? If you want to look at one issue that stands out, in Luke Acts, it's this issue of status honor. That comes through from beginning to end. So let me read it, Luke 9, 44, 46. Right after they were amazed at the greatness of God, it says this. Let, Jesus said this, let these words sink in to your ears. Why does he say it that way? Because what he's saying is exactly what they don't want to hear and they just can't believe. Okay? Sink into ears means penetrate so much that you get what the point is. Let me read it. 
the Son of Man. Who's the Son of Man? Messiah. It's a reference to Daniel 7. Jesus is going to be delivered into the hands of men. What, did, what were they talking about in the Mount of Transfiguration? His exodus, which he's about to accomplish with Moses and Elijah. Verse 45, but they did not understand this statement and it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it. They were afraid to ask about the statement. They didn't get it. And there was a reason. It was too, they got, they'll eventually get it, but not until after the resurrection. As a matter of fact, this comes up again and again. Yes, go ahead. They didn't get it to the point that Jesus even had to call Peter Satan and... Get thee behind me, Satan. Yeah, get behind me, Satan. And in the garden, he uh, leaps up from uh, a slumber and slices uh, the guy's ear off. So they never believed what Jesus was trying to tell them. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see that eventually because it comes up. And then look, here's Luke giving us proof in verse 46 why they didn't get it. Look at verse 46. An argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. Now, there is the Achilles heel, and I'm using a, an analogy. Achilles is from mythology, but it still terms, it, it, the author determines the meaning, the one thing that will knock us down no matter how great we are. What is the greatest danger to Christians, Christian families, churches, teachers, preachers, anybody. Pride. Comparing ourselves to our peers, whether it be other preachers, other churches, and trying to prove who's the greatest. That is the, that will destroy us. And it just does. No one, especially Americans are, very much like the Jews were there. Who wants to fail? Who wants somebody to look at you and see you're a failure? What did you do? How many people? How, how big an offering? Who, who did what? And we don't like that. We don't like to fail. But if you faithfully preach the gospel... That is the one way that people can be delivered from the domain of Satan through the forgiveness of sins. How could you leave this delivered demoniac in the land of the Gerizines who hadn't been discipled, hadn't found out what his Myers-Briggs test said he was? I mean, honestly, they, they think if you just figure out what your personality is, you'll be successful. None of that matters. Because he's delivered and sent by Christ, all he had to do was testify about the great things God did for him. They were afraid of him, but there he was as a testimony that God delivers anybody. Who's the greatest? Now let's go to our text right here. Tannehill, by the way, really helped me see a lot of the where to look to find this narrative of unity. Back on Acts 19, 14-16, Jesus, I know, Paul, I recognize, but who are you? Let me make a point here. I have it on my slide. Deliverance is relational, not technological. <clears throat> I hope that makes sense. Deliverance is relational, not technological. What do I mean? They were looking for techniques that could be used and uh, reused and learned that are going to get the result they're looking for. But here's the kicker. Every human being is born into a fallen world. If you want to save a lot of time analyzing America right now and all the political debates I'll tell you something very simple that shows why 
it's so bad. The problem is a failure to believe in the fall. If you don't believe that human beings are alienated from God, sinful, and prone to evil, then you think a certain way. And you start thinking you could get paradise on earth by some means, whether it's having more laws or whatever. But the Bible teaches the fall. And every human being has one need, and that's forgiveness of sins. And if you don't have that, how if we think that having a very comfortable life for 100 years and then dying was a fantastic outcome, we don't understand the Bible. We need forgiveness of sins. Technology cannot save us. Spiritual technology cannot save us. Religious technology cannot save us. Church growth technology cannot save us. Only God does through Christ. Now, let me cite Tannehill because I want us to, what a help to me it was when I started really exploring the narrative unity of Luke Acts. Tannehill, who really did a good job in the 90s on this, he says this, the Jewish exorcists attempt to do what Paul is, is doing with disastrous results. The evil spirit knows the power of Jesus' name. By the way, it's not a secret name. Yeshua. There's lots of Yeshua's. But this is the God the Son. This is the one who sits at the right hand of the authority of God on high, Psalm 110 and verse 1. This is a unique one. The creator announced by the people early in Luke and elsewhere. So back to Tannehill, the evil spirit knows the power of Jesus' name, but also knows the difference between a true exorcist and the counterfeit. The sons of Sceva attempt the exorcism through Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Wrong tempts. Right? Second, well, Paul over here, this other Jesus, we don't know him, but I bet you that'll work. He didn't. Tannehill, their words indicate their distant, indirect knowledge of Jesus. The evil spirits reply, Jesus, I recognize and Paul, I know, but who are you? Underscore says Tannehill, the futility of their attempt while bearing witness to Jesus and also to Paul as Jesus' chosen representative. This scene is somewhat like Paul's encounter with a Jewish false prophet in 13, 6 through 12, where in both cases, Paul's powers highlighted a contrast with a false counterpart. In both cases, says Tannehill, the issue of magic appears in the context, 13, 6, 8, and so on. The scene also resembles Peter's encounter with Simon Magus, Samaria. I mentioned that last week, 8, 18 through 24. There are also the issue of magic appears. And Simon, like the sons of Sceva, wants to exercise the same power as Jesus' witnesses, falsely believing that it can be manipulated through formulas or money. It still goes on. There are people in the Christian world who are charging thousands of dollars to do exorcisms and no guarantee of the results. And I have, I can bring a bag of books of those people who write these things. And you cannot engage in that and have an eternal perspective. Why would you enrich yourself $3,000 a pop and never tell people about redemption, forgiveness, and eternal life. What good is it? More from Tana Hill. The echoes of the apostles' successful work in Jerusalem, Samaria, in the early days of the mission, suggest that the word of the Lord is equally power, powerful in Paul's Ephesian ministry and that the Christian ministry mission 
to be equally successful in a pluralistic world of Greeks and the diaspora Jews represented in Ephesus. Here's the point. It doesn't matter where you are on the earth. It doesn't matter if you're in Africa, modern Israel, Europe, Canada, Sri Lanka. I see that there's huge problems there. We've been, we know people that have been missionaries that are working these places, Philippines, Brazil, South America. It doesn't matter where you are on the globe. The gospel has the power to deliver you, not from bad outcomes in this life, but from the entire domain of darkness and transfer you into the kingdom of his beloved son. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. The difference between the gathering isn't the name, it's forgiveness of sins through the power of Christ. It doesn't matter that he's still in Gentile territory. There's no place you can move to on this earth where when you get there, you're going to be in a Christian place, whereas before you were not. Anywhere. You can live in the Vatican. Does that make you in a Christian place? Um, and it's the desire of church history to replicate things that never did exist and never could other than Christ returning and reigning himself. We went through some pictures for looking for pictures over the years to celebrate our 50th anniversary. We found some from Barbados. In 2007, they asked us to come to Barbados because the church growth movement had come there. And there were some evangelicals on the island of Barbados. So I agreed, Diane and I went. Turned out I'm allergic to the island. <laughs> but uh, the, the rains every day and the mold never stops. But nevertheless, uh, and then when I got there, they, they had flowers all around the... I went through more Benadryl and... Anyhow, that's not the point. Um, do you know the history of Barbados? Americans tend not to go there. It's British that go there. The British uh, colonized Barbados, and their independence from the Queen happened just in, within less than 100 years. It was, it was fairly recent. But the island was divided into parishes. And so the Anglican Church said, okay, you are on this part of the island, here's your church. So in the middle of every parish that's covered the whole island of Barbados was an Anglican church. So you belong to this parish. You belong, did you know a parish is a geographical territory? And they claim that if you live in that territory, you're under their church. And, whoops, and the queen is the head of the Anglican church or the king. And now you're a Christian. And so you go to your parish church. But it didn't really make anybody a Christian, although some were. Now, the people who asked us to come were, I think, Nazarenes or a different kind of group that were evangelicals. So we were on Barbados, and we learned about parishes and so on. Here's the problem. Christianity is not about geography. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. There's nowhere on the globe you can go where your sin nature magically goes away. There's nowhere you can be raised where you're pristine. There's nowhere you can come from where you're not a sinner. Anywhere. It doesn't matter where it is. The whole if you want to look at the gay earth, the cosmos, however word in the Bible for the entire world, 
the fall is true. The only way for anyone anywhere to be free from darkness is to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But whenever that happens, throughout church history, there's this idea that we're going to create a territory now, and right here, we're going to get rid of the problems. Here's your parish. Here's your church. Here's your hymnal. Here's your doctrines. Now you're a Christian. Go there. That's all they do. Has it ever worked? No. And now, I don't care how much money you have, how much brick and mortar mortar you invest, invest in, how big the library, how prestigious the institution, how educated the professors, within one or two generations, what you'll hear is liberal darkness. And it happens again and again. That's how I met Eric. The first time I ever saw him, we're standing in front of the cornerstone at Bethel Seminary. And I'm not complaining. I got a fantastic education. I would have never heard of Tannehill had I not been there. But they got rid of that within 10 years. And it said from Isaiah, here I am, send me. But it didn't complete the verse. Now, <laughs> Eric uh, had been taught by a guy by the name of Leron Schultz, who just got there toward the end before I graduated. They didn't have the gospel. He was just teaching philosophy. And the things that were taught earlier, like the meaning of the Lord's Supper, Christian baptism, um, Bible teaching, all of that, it, all, it was gone. It was replaced by philosophy and psychology and psychiatry, with few exceptions. So now what happens here as they want to be the greatest? What we know, because we already read Luke Acts a few times, is that Luke is about a journey to go be rejected. How many people are going to volunteer to be part of a mission where the outcome is you'll be rejected? And so that's why they don't get it, and they keep arguing about who's the greatest. I think Brian called me one time recently, and remember... uh, you asked about, I think, the Lord's Supper. Before we do that, let me look at Luke 11. I must have printed that somewhere. It does me a lot of good to print all these things because I can't remember what folder the paper's in. Let's look at 11, 14 to 23. I don't think I have a slide for it, do I? No. This comes up again and again. Luke eleven, fourteen to twenty three. <clears throat> now I was driving out a demon that was mute, and when the demon came out, the man who had been mute spake or spoke, and the crowds were amazed. See that word amazed? It's a key word in Luke X. But some of them said he drives out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. And others, as a test, were demanding him a sign from heaven. Verse 17. Knowing their thoughts. Stop right there. Who knows the thoughts of the heart, according to the Bible? Only God. Statement about the deity of Christ. God knows the heart. In fact, there's a word in in English we'd hyphenate it. Heart knower. God is the heart knower. Knowing their thoughts, he told them, Every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction. House divided against itself fails. If Satan is also divided against himself, how will this kingdom stand? For you say I drive out demons by Beelzebul, and if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, Beelzebul, who who is it your sons drive them out by? Now these ones were sons of a high priest, Sceva, but they didn't actually drive them out. I think I read to you Josephus's description of techniques they used. 
these mandrake roots and smoke, and they try to get them to come out through the smoke. I think I read that. This is an unknown. It's out there. But it doesn't really work. He says, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. When a strong man fully armed guards his estate, his possessions are secure. Now, when the stronger that he attacks, the one stronger, that's Christ, the kingdom of God coming on the scene of history through Christ, and overpowers him, he takes from him all his weapons he trusted and divides up his plunder. Anyone who is not with me is against me. Anyone who not, does not scatter with me, gather with me, scatters. Now, these things make so much sense now. I used to think there's a problem. There's no problem. The only stronger one who can deliver anyone from the kingdom of darkness is Christ. Okay? And if we do not know him, and here's what people get wrong that make these false teachers rich. If you, let's say you are as close to normal as anybody might be, and you live ordinary life, but not bad, your kids love you, you got a good family, you got your bills paid, I know that that's not hard to do anymore, but let's just say you're in that condition. And you live out a good, decent life. You don't have major problems. And you live out a normal lifespan. And at your funeral, lots of people say good things about you. But that's it. Now, no one is going to call an exorcist for ordinary people. But what the deceived world doesn't realize is that the fall from Genesis 3 is true. And in Satan's way of destroying people, allow, just leaving people alone to live out their life without any difficulties keeps them in darkness unless some, there's an intervention by God. Being ordinary and successful and healthy, but not knowing Christ means you're lost. That's what's wrong with the church growth movement. Amen. Filling massive auditoriums with people promising them ordinary middle-class life or maybe, maybe better. But where is forgiveness of sins? How do you get from out of Beelzebub's kingdom, Satan's kingdom? So it's not going to work. It's just going to be worse. Go ahead, uh, please. I was just going to think uh, or just say um, the American dream can be very deceptive, very um, a, a path that is dangerous because... What the, what the world says is the American dream is not include forgiveness of sins. Yeah, if you don't have a relationship with Christ, it might be a nice place. I'm not against it, but it won't save you. Neither will being in the right parish on Barbados or being rich. When we were there, by the way, they took us to the golf course. This was not long after Tiger Woods got married on Barbados. He was so wealthy. He rented all of the helicopters, taxis, buses, so that no one could come and bug him at his wedding. And so a guy that was part of the group that brought us to preach took us around because he owned a tour company. To the, We went to that golf course. But, you know, that didn't necessarily solve Tiger Woods' problems, did it? Sad, really. I hope he comes to know Christ. See, we know this because of the tabloids or the papers. We know that the people that have everything going for them don't really. And so this is telling us what we should know anyhow. So why would you spend your talent, your money, your ability to organize people, your ability to hire brilliant teachers, 
to create brick and mortar, to get all this all set up so that the pagans can come in, take it over, and not allow you to teach the gospel there. That's what Eric and I ran into. So that's why we do the academic teaching right here. If you're hungry to hear the word of God, we're obligated to feed it to you. And if you don't want to hear it, you will anyhow. So so thank you. So deliverance, here's my claim, and this is so biblical from, I believe, from uh, Colossians 1, 13 and 14, Acts 26, 18, and elsewhere, that we need a domain transfer out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic will not save us. Even if you're living in the, in the, you're not down in steerage, you're wherever the top rich people are, it still goes down. And so, um, now what happens? They are shown the sign of Jonah. Let's go. You think we can do two slides in one Sunday? One? I got a few minutes. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, don't do that. What is all this? Every time it does an update, something new happens I didn't understand. Here we go. So now look at the repeated terms. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who live in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord was being magnified. So I don't know how many people listen to this or how many people have Logos software. It's a great tool. You can search these words and narrow it down. I can tell you, and I've got to quit using so much toner. i got buckets of printouts, but then I... Just talk about it anyhow. You look up this word magnified, you can find out every time it's used. You can find out every time it's used in Luke Acts. And fear fell on them all. This is a repeated theme. And I have examples for you. And so the fact that those guys tried to do exercise, exorcism and got beat up went all over the place. What's the message? You need Christ, not magic. Uh, Joy back there uh, would like the mic. Fear coming upon them all. Let me read a couple of verses. Acts 5, 5, and 11. Go ahead, by the way. As I was reading that, I was kind of struck by the fact that... Go ahead. What they had just seen was people that were respected among them, the sons of Sceva, throwing about the name of Jesus, and it wasn't having an effect. Right. But yet, now they're extolling the name of Jesus when they saw that it did not work in the hands of these men? Yes. That uh, kind of, it's, it, I mean, I, I believe the Bible is true, but it's kind of like, well, if they're using the name and the name's not doing anything, why should... Okay. Why did I fear the name and extol the name? Good question. Let me explain that. The name signifies the entirety of the person. When we say name of Jesus, it's not a magical phrase. It's not an incantation. It's everything. The name signifies the person, the honor, the whatever it is about the person. Now, in the case of Jesus, um, Yeshua would be the Hebrew. This means everything the Bible says about him. The very creator of the universe, as I preach often, John 1, 1 through 18. The one prophesied about in the Bible. You start just read Luke 1, 1, up to the point where we or been looking at these things. The one prophesied about the coming one, 
the, the mighty one, the son of God, the son of David, the son of man, the one who's uh, going to die for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. And so the name isn't a secret word to scare demons. It's the person. Here's the point. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, but you, I've seen blasphemous heretics with a big sign over their head, Jesus is Lord. But the way they define Jesus is not the Jesus of the Bible. Does that make sense to you? If you don't get the doctrine of Christ right, it's just a name. And there's lots of, if that's what they said, Jesus whom Paul preaches. I was just going to point out that it's a form of taking the Lord's name in vain. Good point. When, when we take his name and we use it as a, a way to manipulate the demonic realm, but we don't trust in him, we're taking upon his name upon our lips in a vain way. And so one of the problems that the Israelites had is that they thought, well, as long as we don't utter his name, we're not taking his name in vain. But no, they bore his name because they were his people, yet they lived in a vain way. They didn't trust and they didn't obey. Therefore, they're taking the Lord's name in vain. So the only way not to take his name in vain is ultimately to believe in Christ. Trust in him. Trust in him. Yeah, amen. Yeah. So using his name as an amulet or a saying to try to manip- manipulate the, de- the demonic realm is taking the Lord's name in vain. Good point. I agree. And so the name of the Lord being magnified means the person and work of Christ, who he is, what he did, why we need him. And so let me give you a quick rundown in about two minutes here. Uh, what, what does it mean to magnify the Lord? The name was magnified. Here's a few. I think I have them listed here, but this is a review Luke one forty six, Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord. There's that word. Luke one fifty eight, her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. Um, and then there's others. I, I didn't write them all down. Acts 5.13. Um, think about this. How does God magnify his name by choosing and saving a people. Remember Genesis 12, 2, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I make your name great and you will be a blessing. Who was that given to? Abraham. Why is Abraham significant? Because he lived in the right geographical location. Ur of the Chaldees wasn't anything extraordinary. Yahweh appeared to him, so I'll make your name great in order to bring forth Messianic salvation. 2 Samuel 7, 46, your name shall be great forever, and they will say, Yahweh of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. Psalm 43, 34:3, magnify Yahweh with me, let us exalt his name together. And ultimately, the only reason God is exalted is because he takes action to glorify his own name. So it says in Ezekiel 28, uh, excuse me, 38, 23. Now, remember, Israel didn't live up to their calling. I think that's one of the reasons, besides, obviously, Bible prophecy, God's not done yet. There's still a yet future because God is going to bring honor to his own name by saving people, even an obstinate people. Ezekiel 38, 23. And so I will exalt myself and show myself holy, and I will make myself known before the eyes of many nations, and they will know I am Yahweh. Ultimately, in Christ, God is showing himself to be exalted and great. So everything you read about, and I'm just giving you a brief summary. I'm hoping to get to the point where this it's just on the tip of my tongue and in my mind. Because Luke acts as a two-volume. God is acting to show who he is. And the people are tempted to debate who's the greatest. Can you imagine the Mount of Transfiguration? Moses, 
Elijah, Jesus, they get a preview of glory. Father says, from heaven says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. You get down, who's the greatest? Why would you have that discussion? You can spend a lot of money to have somebody help you prove you're the greatest. It's called an ad campaign. Oh, I got to close this. Dr. Schnabel, again, I love the scholarship, and I don't know where to send people to get it, so we'll just create a hunger by God's grace. People want to learn how to study. Schnabel, the passive of the verb was glorified is best linked with the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus as they hear of the failed attempt to drive out an evil spirit by the invocation of the name of Jesus an attempt that blew up in the faces of the exorcists because they did not believe in Jesus. They realize that there is indeed supernatural power connected with the name, and this power cannot be manipulated by the use of the name in invocations. Now, next week, we're going to look at how much money they were willing to spend on magic. 50,000 pieces of silver. When silver was $33 an ounce, that'd be a lot right now. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for uh, the, the gathering of the flock. Thank you for Eric. And may his words to us penetrate to our hearts. And may we learn to submit to you and not argue about who's the greatest, but magnify your name by declaring who you are and what you've done and humbly submitting to you. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. God bless you.